All right, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the many times that you have led uh, your people throughout history. We think especially of the history of the Adventist Church. And now as we spend time going over various events, we ask that you would not only help us to understand uh, our identity as Seventh-day Adventists, but that you would also uh, help us to understand and partake of the spirit of the pioneers as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, welcome to the uh, Adventist history class at Advent Hope. We're uh, happy that each one of you can be here, and we're looking forward to studying uh, highlights from Adventist history. Obviously, after about 165 years or so, you can't cover everything, but we're going to try to hit some of the main points. Before we begin, though, I just want to read you a couple quotes to talk about a uh, philosophy uh, behind studying Adventist history. And one of them you probably are familiar with. It's found in Life Sketches, page 196. And it says that, uh, does anyone know that? We have nothing to fear for the future, except what? As we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. And so we want to remember the way that the Lord has led. We want to go over those teachings that uh, we have learned throughout the past. We don't want to forget those. The other quotation I want to bring, bring up is found, uh, it's actually a manuscript release, 346. It was uh, Ellen White writing to A.G. Daniels in 1903. And she says, Again and again I have been shown that the past experiences of God's people are not to be counted as dead facts. So while we're talking here about Adventist history, these are not dead facts. This is a living history. In fact, in a very real sense, each one of us is still part of that history and are making history uh, each day. We are not to treat the record of these experiences as we would treat last year's almanac. The record is to be kept in mind, for history will repeat itself. The darkness of the mysteries of the night is to be illuminated with the light of heaven. And so we're going to be studying Adventist history with an eye towards the future. And we're going to want to learn the lessons so that we can put them into practice as we make Adventist history today. All right? A couple things about the class before we begin. Uh, this class is just inherently kind of more lecture-based. And so while there will be times where you might, you'll be reading Bible texts and things like that, uh, we're not going to be taking too many questions. We've got a lot of material to cover and very little time. And so if you do have questions, we will have a question and answer period uh, probably on the last Sabbath that uh, we study the last, uh, our last topic. And so maybe that afternoon we'll have a question and answer time. Save your questions, write them down, and we can cover them during that session. Okay? I want to go over a schedule with you. Uh, we'll post this in the, in the foyer, okay? But let me just go over it with you and for our Audioverse audience. The first topic we'll be covering this morning will be, is called The Great Advent Awakening. And we'll be covering basically the Millerite movement. However, 
there's so much to cover, we're going to split it into two. And next week, we'll be covering the specific part of the Millerite movement that was uh, right before 1844, called the Seventh Month Movement, and uh, when the Midnight Cry was given. So that will be next week. The week after that, we'll be covering uh, what we are calling present truth, the development of the truths that the Adventist Church uh, holds now. Many of them are distinctive, and there'll be a special emphasis on uh, the sanctuary, uh, the spirit of prophecy, and the Sabbath. After that, we have a topic called Almost to Canaan, and it's what, uh, what you could term the close calls that, that we as a church have had when Jesus uh, potentially could have come. Uh, and so there are three major times that that happened. Uh, the last one happened in 1888, and that is uh, so important that we're going to split that out into a second section. So the uh, next section after that is going to be about the 1888 General Conference. After that, we're going to cover the health message and medical missionary work, and we'll include in there a, a talk about Kellogg and Battle Creek Sanitarium. After that, we're going to cover education, and uh, Madison especially, as well as some other things. And then we're going to move on into some more recent Adventist history. We're going to cover what happened in the 1950s when Walter Martin approached the Adventist church with questions about our doctrines. And after that, we're going to cover what happened in the 70s and the 80s, especially dealing with what happened with Desmond Ford. And finally, we're going to end with uh, current events in Adventism, talking about what's happening now and perhaps even a little bit about the future. So that's kind of the outline of what's going to happen uh, so that you can, you can look forward to, to those things. Make sure to bring your Bibles. We'll still be using our Bibles here and there uh, to talk about some of the different things. And uh, this class will be primarily taught by three people. Uh, that will be Norman McNulty, Adrian Zahed, and myself, Tim Arakawa. All right, let's start our talk with a little bit of historical context, okay? Because uh, if you're familiar with the time period of the uh, late 1700s and the early 1800s, a lot was going on during that time. And some of those things that were happening were specifically uh, made it conducive for the Advent movement to begin. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the fact that in the United States at the time of William Miller, there was uh, a tremendous amount of religious freedom. And this was very, very important because uh, um, if you think about it, there were scholars and uh, lay people all over the world in the 1800s who were studying the Second Coming. And they were studying the prophecies. Uh, they were especially studying them because of the French Revolution. The French Revolution renewed the interest in the 1260-year prophecy uh, because they believed that uh, that was the fulfillment. So why didn't Adventist, the Advent movement begin in Europe? And uh, one of the answers is that Europe did not have religious freedom. Uh, in Europe, you had a state religion that was pr pretty much in control of, of the way things the way things were going to be, and uh, they dominated the religious landscape. But in, in America, there was religious freedom. Everyone had the opportunity to choose which denomination that they would worship and, and, and what their beliefs would be. And so in America, there were a lot of 
uh, mostly Protestant denominations, but they were, uh, there was a lot of them, what we call a religious plurality, no dominant religion. And so this provided an atmosphere that, uh, that people could study. Um, so if you think about it, the, the establishment of the United States, and especially its constitution, which guarantees freedom of religion and the separation of church and state, was critical for Adventism to begin. Another important, uh, important uh, part of this time period was the development of a lot of isms. And uh, if you know what I mean by isms, uh, let's just go through a few, and maybe you can think of a few as well. Uh, one was humanism. Humanism came from basically the Age of Enlightenment, where uh, reason and rational thought was, was uh, people's way of finding truth. And so it led to um, the idea that humans uh, could, could find truth and that humans um, could, could develop and uh, think for themselves and, and find truth. And it's led to something called deism. Have you heard of deism before? Deism is the idea that, that God uh, is a very distant God. He started things off, let it go. Uh, it rejects uh, a personal God. It develops divine revelation, especially through Scripture. And so deism was uh, a way of, of using rational thought to come into truth. Can you think of any other isms that were happening during the 1700s, 1800s? Spiritualism was a, was a big part of what was happening then. Spiritualism actually started in 1844 and uh, um, continued to grow throughout the beginnings of, of the Advent movement and beyond. Any other isms? Mormonism. Mormonism actually began in, uh, in 1830 and uh, was right around the same time that Adventism started, believe it or not. Any other isms? Okay, Marxism was another, another as well. There's a whole series of lectures by uh, uh, Dr. Dupre about the different isms and different things that started. Yes. Okay, so you could call it Darwinism also started. The uh, Origin of Species was, uh, was written around the time of 1840. There are others as well. Uh, we can't go through all of them. I'll mention a few others. Um, there was feminism uh, that started. And uh, other things uh, such as temperance, the temperance movement, the anti-slavery movement, prohibition. These are all things that were starting around that time. A lot of reform. Um, but a lot of this was based in humanism. The idea that humans could influence society by their actions. <clears throat> uh, this also was reflected in the churches, in fact. Uh, there was renewed emphasis on missionary activity. Especially with the westward expansion, the manifest destiny as uh, America expanded westward. So uh, they had a lot of Bible societies that started and a lot of religious interest. And a lot of this had to, deal with, do, had to do with a concept called post-millennialism. The idea that Jesus was going to come uh, after, uh, the, at the end of a millennium after a thousand years of prosperity. And so they thought that perhaps with the Industrial Revolution and all these things happening, that this was a time where Prosperity would come, the whole world might be converted, and then Jesus could come. Uh, but it was through the, the prophecies and through William Miller that uh, the idea of premillennialism became popular. So the, the story of the Millerite movement starts with 
of course, William Miller. So I we want to talk a little bit about William Miller's life. Now, William Miller was a in very interesting man. He was born in 1782 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And he was uh, uh, part of a, a, a farming system there. His father was a farmer, and uh, the, he had a family of 16 children, of which William Miller was the eldest. Um, since he, he was a boy, he was always uh, very uh, studious. Um, he, even though he only went to school maybe two or three months out of a year, uh, the rest of the time they had to work on the farm, uh, he learned to read and he, he would go to wealthy neighbors because they couldn't afford books. He would borrow books from wealthy neighbors and he would read them at night by, uh, by the fire when everyone else had gone to sleep. Very similar to kind of like the stories of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln, that type of person. And this is where he, he got a lot of his education, his, uh, his love for history and uh, of reading books and of, of becoming a, a self-learner. When he was 21, he moved to Pulteney, Vermont, uh, because he met a girl there and, and married. And while he was there, he began to go to the public library of that town. And uh, while he was there, he met uh, some people who were called deists, all right? And uh, we already talked about deism. And these ideas were, were new to William Miller, and uh, he began to be influenced by the deists. And many times this happens. Uh, you may have even seen it in, in your own life where people around you, where you're t uh, when, when people are young, they're taught to follow Jesus, to pray, and to go to church. But unless we make it our own, unless we have develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ ourselves, then when we leave home, when we perhaps go out and we experience uh, some, the worldly ideas and, and other things, skepticism, then we're easily influenced and we can be led astray. And that's what happened here with uh, William Miller. Um, he hadn't made it his own and so he began to be uh, converted to deism and he renounced his Christian faith. Now around this time, the War of 1812 broke out. And uh, William Miller was actually a captain, uh, or he, he was actually a lieutenant, and was, um, he was, uh, rose to the rank of captain during the War of 1812. And uh, it was during the war that William Miller uh, actually became disillusioned with deism. He, he went into the war thinking that... Uh, Perhaps the war would bring out the best in man, if you can believe that or not, because of uh, what, what he called love of country, patriotism, he thought was a redeeming quality of mankind. But through the war, he saw a different side of mankind, and it began to disillusion him. So it wasn't until the, the Battle of Plattsburgh uh, in the War of 1812 that William Miller began to believe in God again. Now, the Battle of Plattsburgh was the decisive American victory in, uh, in the War of 1812. Basically, what happened was the British uh, Army and Navy tried to uh, invade the United States um, from Canada. And uh, even though the American force was uh, outnumbered, I believe it was like almost three to one, somehow, someway, they, they won a decisive victory, and they actually... Um, helped 
contribute to the end of the War of 1812. And so because it was such a, a, a decisive victory and uh, it seemed so unlikely, William Miller truly believed that, that this was a providential working of God. And so he came back to, uh, he came back after the war and started going to church. He started uh, attending the Baptist church of, of his hometown. Well, William Miller, uh, uh, his uncle would, was, uh, would sometimes preach. And, but when the minister was not available to preach at the Baptist church, they would bring in a deacon and have him read a printed sermon. You can imagine if we did that at Avent Hope, how that would go over. Uh, it's just not the same when it's not a live sermon, right? So uh, William Miller kind of, uh, he wouldn't go those, those, uh, those Sundays to church until the church started asking him to read the printed sermons, and then he started coming, coming again. And it was one Sunday when he was reading a printed sermon on uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, as he was reading about our Savior and uh, how he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, you know, by his stripes we are healed, and all those things, he, he was overcome uh, by those, those themes, and he actually uh, couldn't finish reading the sermon, and he had to sit down. And that was the beginning of his uh, return to Christianity. And so that's something that, uh, that I think applies to each one of us. You know, if we haven't made it our own, it's easy to, to not realize uh, what it really means to have uh, Christ as our Savior, the love of, of God to send His only begotten Son to this earth to die for people who, were, who would reject Him. And so it's only as we look at the cross, as we look at, at the love of God and our hearts are melted that we truly, truly are converted. Isn't that right? And that was the same for William Miller. Well, after this, William Miller began to study his Bible in earnest. And uh, what he would do is he started in the book of Genesis. And he would study each verse. And he would study it until he was able to explain it to his satisfaction. And he wouldn't go on until he, until he knew the meaning of that verse. And so he would go verse by verse. And he only used his Bible and a concordance. That was it. Back then, they used the Cruden's Concordance. And uh, so he would just use those two things. And as he studied, he developed some rules to help him to interpret the Bible. And those rules became so popular, they were actually published, they became known as Miller's Rules of Bible Interpretation. Have you heard of them before? I want to go over a couple of them with you because I, I think there's still great ways of studying the Bible even to this day. <clears throat> There were 13 of them. We'll just cover a few. But uh, one of the important things that William Miller taught was that the Bible must be its own interpreter. Uh, if you come to the Bible with your own presuppositions and your own interpretations, it's easy to turn it the way you want it to, to be. But William Miller believed in sola scriptura. He believed that the Bible uh, should be used as its own guide. He also uh, use a lot of word studies. A word study is, or, is where you take a word or perhaps a concept, a topic in the Bible, and you look up in the concordance all the references to that particular subject. And once you look at the whole biblical perspective on that, then you come to a true understanding of what that means for your particular verse or context. 
So William Miller did a lot of this using his concordance. And that's a great way, by the way, to study the Bible. He also had the idea that things in Scripture should be taken literally unless there is an obvious symbolic meaning, unless you couldn't take it literally. And then he would, he would look at the figurative language. And uh, he especially applied this to prophecy. And one of the most important but often overlooked uh, rules of Bible interpretation that William Miller had, it was number 13, was that no matter what, you have to come to the Bible in faith. And uh, this, he, this was his most important uh, rule, that uh, you had to have faith that it was the Word of God, and you, uh, you couldn't come to it and cling to your own human motives and desires, but you had to submit that to the authority of Scripture. And these are all things that we can do as we study the Bible today. Well, William Miller studied for two years going through the Bible, and eventually he got to Daniel. And specifically, he got to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And let's turn to that verse. It's such an important verse that we don't want to skip over it. This has become a very important verse for Adventists to this day. Could someone uh, read that text for us? Raise your hand. All right. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right. So, as we said already, the world was interested in prophecy. And especially the 1260-day prophecy, they had been studying and they realized that it had culminated uh, in, uh, in the French Revolution. And so, they next turned to the other big-time prophecy in the Bible, which is the 2300-day prophecy. Now, William Miller knew from uh, his study of the Scriptures that there was a day-for-a-year principle in the Bible. And uh, the, the three main ways he knew was Numbers 14, verse 34, right? Ezekiel 4, 4 verse 6, and also the 70-year prophecy in Daniel. They all substantiate this, uh, this day-year day principle. And so he applied that to the 2300 days. And he thought, of course, that uh, the, uh, the sanctuary would be the earth, uh, God's people originally, and then eventually the earth, and that the cleansing was a purifying uh, of the earth by fire. And so he applied this to the second coming. So here he had, he had established potentially a, uh, the time when that, uh, or he knew that the a second advent was near. And this he came to in 1818, two years after he had, he had started studying his Bible. But William Miller did not begin preaching until 1831, 13 years later. Why was that? Well, one reason is because William Miller was, uh, was not, he, he wanted to be sure that he, ha he was right. This was such an important announcement. He wanted to, he didn't want to lead anyone astray and he felt that responsibility. So he studied it for five more years to, to, to really make sure that everything was tight and everything made sense. After five years, he still, he was even more sure 
that it was true. And he began to receive, uh, get this, uh, I, this impression that he needed to go and tell it to the world. But he still didn't. He told the Lord, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a good public speaker. And uh, I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that I would be worthy and that I would be able to, to, to preach this message. And so he waited. And he waited. He did tell a few of his, his friends, uh, his, uh, the people locally, but there, wasn't, there didn't seem to be much interest. And so he kind of put it, he, kind of, he kept studying, but he kind of kept it to himself. Well, at some point he began preaching, right? And many of you may have heard the story of, of how he eventually came to preach it. It's an in, a very, very interesting story. I'm, I'm going to tell it to you now. Uh, it was August of 1831. And William Miller was in his study, studying, of course, his Bible uh, sometime after breakfast. And he again received this impression, uh, this, this impression to go and tell it to the world. But this time, the conviction came upon him so strongly, it o- almost overwhelmed him. And he dropped to his knees and he began to pray. And what he promised God, he said, I give it to you verbatim. He said, if I should have an invitation to speak publicly in any place, I will go and tell them what I find in the Bible about the Lord's coming. Now, William Miller felt pretty confident in this because uh, he had never been asked to speak publicly in his whole life. And he, and he also knew that no one, no one knew about this pact he had made with God. So he felt pretty sure that he wouldn't get uh, an invitation and, and definitely not that day. But interestingly enough, the, a messenger was already on his way as William Miller was, was praying with an invitation for him to share his, his study on the second advent with a group uh, in nearby Dresden. Their minister was not able to speak, and so they had sent a messenger over to ask him if he could, could share. And uh, this messenger had been sent before William Miller even made that uh, made that promise to God. I can just imagine God smiling as he heard William Miller's prayer, knowing that, uh, that the answer was already on the way. Well, William Miller, he was a man of his word. And he went to Dresden, and he held that meeting. And uh, um, we don't have time for too many uh, questions, but... Uh, That's right. That's right. So the messenger was asking him to speak specifically on the second advent. They knew that he had been, that he had been studying, studying that. All right. So he went to Dresden. He spoke. And uh, once he started speaking, you know, he was nervous before perhaps, but once he started speaking, he totally lost himself in, in the, in the uh, discourse. And he he just began to preach. And it made such an impression upon the people there. They asked him to stay for a whole week and do a series of lectures for them. And as he preached, more and more people came. And it turned into a revival. They say of the 13 families that, uh, that attended, of course, families were large in those days, uh, all of the families except for two people were converted. 
And so this was a confirmation to William Miller of the effect and, 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 what, uh, and God's blessing upon, upon this, uh, this message. After that, the invitations began to increase, and he began to speak all over that local area. And uh, it's interesting to note that uh, William Miller himself said that between 1842 and March of 1844, this is the, the latter part here of, uh, of that great, that great uh, revival, he gave 3,200 lectures, and that's in a little over two years. So you can imagine how, how much, and of course he wasn't the only speaker that was going out and speaking and lecturing about the Second Advent. So you can imagine the, the demand and the uh, amount of, of, of lectures that he eventually w- be, was giving. Well, the story doesn't end there because at that point, William Miller was only uh, preaching in his local area, but the message had not gone out to the main, the main cities yet. And this is where Joshua Himes comes in. Joshua Himes was a... Uh, a pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston. He was one of the ones that had helped start the New England Anti-Slavery Society uh, with William Lloyd Garrison. Perhaps you've read about him in your American history textbooks. He was a very prominent reformer. And uh, he had heard about William Miller and invited him to come speak in Boston. While William Miller was in Boston giving those lectures, Joshua Hines became very convicted that uh, William Miller, uh, the, what he was proclaiming needed to be spread throughout the major cities in the United States. And he asked William Miller, why aren't you uh, spreading this and then preaching this in the larger cities? And William Miller told him, it's because I haven't been invited. And uh, so at that point, Joshua Himes determined that he would be that, ma- that man to help to spread the, the message to uh, the large cities, the, met, the, metro, uh, the metropolis uh, all over America. So he became, became this public relations machine. And uh, he became the chief organizer and promoter of the Advent message. Some of the things that he did is he published a newspaper. In those days, that was how they, it'd be like uh, maybe making a website nowadays or something. He made a, a newspaper and it was called the Signs of the Times. Have you ever heard of that before? It's still published today. The Signs of the Times. And he published it through the, print, the same printers who were publishing his anti-slavery magazines. And uh, later this became the Advent Herald. And it became a practice. Wherever they went to a large city, the Advent, the Advent lecturers would produce a, a newspaper. For instance, when they went to New York, they, they printed a newspaper called The Midnight Cry. And uh, they would make thousands and thousands of these and pass them out. And after the meetings were over, it would become a weekly. And every week, they would publish. They also had a second Advent library, a selection of different books and pamphlets that people could own as a personal library, and they could uh, um, loan them to their friends to help them to understand the message as well. Some other things they did that I thought were interesting was they would take the 1843 chart, okay, as a chart that had a bunch of the prophetic... uh, different prophecies on there, and they would print it on a half sheet of stationery. So one half of the stationery, you could write your letter. The other half was a facsimile of the 1843 chart. Now, have you ever seen the 1843 chart? There's a lot of text. I'm, I'm surprised that they could, they could read that. But uh, that was one way that they would, they would promote uh, the, the Advent message. 
They had other things. They produced lots of tracts. In fact, Joshua Himes says uh, by, the, uh, by 1844, they had distributed a, approximately 5 million newspapers and tracts. Well, we need to keep moving. So I want to tell you a little bit about the General Conference. The Advent believers before 1844 had general conferences. And uh, the first one was in October of 1840. And this was basically uh, to bring all, all the leaders together of the Advent movement. About 200 people showed up. Uh, interestingly enough, William Miller was not able to make it. He got sick. And so he wasn't a part of the first general conference. But uh, it was such a success that 15 more were held in the next three years. Not, uh, more than that, there were uh, more local conferences that were also held. And about 120 local conferences were held in less than three years. Can you imagine? 120 local conferences. And this kind of reminds me of, of GYC, um, Generation of Youth for Christ. started as a general youth conference. It's very similar. You had uh, a small group of people who came together, um, about 200 actually. And uh, it was such a success that it's grown since. And it also there are many, many now local uh, uh, youth conferences as well that have started up. Very similar. I believe that uh, we're seeing a similar, um, a similar idea happening now. Uh, you know, the Advent movement really was a movement. And I believe that that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a movement. GYC is really a movement of young people and of, uh, within the Adventist church. Besides general conferences, they also had camp meetings. And the first camp meeting was in June of 1842, about a month after the sixth general conference session. And they, they had it in New Hampshire. And uh, about, they say that over 10,000 people attended at some point during that first camp meeting. It was so successful that uh, they had planned to have three different camp meetings throughout that summer. They ended up having 31 camp meetings in that one summer. The next year, the next summer, they had 40. And the summer after that, they had uh, 54. Can you imagine? 54 different uh, uh, camp meetings. On top of those, of course, those 120 general conferences, uh, local conferences, etc. The meetings were so large that they eventually could not hold them in, in meeting halls, and they actually had to commission a tent. It was called the Great Tent. It was the largest tent that had ever been made in America. There was an Adventist tent maker who made it. It was 120 feet, in, I believe, in diameter. It wa was uh, over 50 feet uh, tall, and it could hold, it could seat 4,000 people comfortably, 2,000 in the aisles. Up to 6,000 people could fit in this great tent. And believe it or not, the urgency was so great. You can imagine when you believe that the, uh, that the second coming is so eminent, uh, that this, this uh, huge tent was built in one month. About, they estimate that about 500,000 people uh, attended Adventist camp meetings during those three years. And there's a lot more we could talk about. Norman is going to cover the rest of, of the Millerite movement in the next session. But I want to end with this. You know, I've often wondered what it would be like to live during those times. Have you ever thought about that? And how, how uh, really, uh, we are living 
in that time period. The question we, should, we need to ask ourselves is, where do we fit in? If we were living then, where, what would you be doing? Would you be a Millerite? Would you be a part of, of, of one of these conferences or these camp meetings? Would you be loaning out books to your friends? In reality, we live in those times. And if anything, these are the times that the pioneers wish they could live in. And what are we doing? Do we have that spirit? Are we as convicted that the, uh, the nearness of Christ's coming? And so as you think about it, are you William Miller? Uh, perhaps you're William Miller earlier in his life. Maybe you're William Miller later in life. Has God been calling you to step up and share? Uh, and you've been putting it off. Don't put that off any longer. Make that promise to God that you will, that you will share what you know. Or perhaps you're at the Bible study part of William Miller's life. And you want to go back and learn to study truly the way he did. Or maybe you're a Joshua Himes. Maybe you're one of those people that, that has that mind for PR or to spread God's word in a new way. So think about where you stand. And as we go through the rest of the Millerite movement next week, think about what they were going through because I believe that we will go through something greater. That just the way the Holy Spirit was poured out among those people, that we will see that in even greater amounts in the, in the, coming, the coming year, ne- the next few years. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking further into that as we, as we go through Adventist history. All right, thank you so much. Shall we end with prayer? Dear Father in heaven, we, we thank you so much for the spirit that we see in the pioneers and how they were so dedicated to your cause. We ask that you would give us the same spirit, that you would give it to us in a double portion, that we would go out convicted that your coming is near, and spread that to a dying world. We ask for your power to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.